Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor and enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. Lloyd Williams Jones. And Shannon Doherty. Hello. And together, we're going to explore the often murky world of book scrutiny. Thanks to Neil Almond on the Discord for this episode request, and we'll get right to it in a second. But first, Chris, what you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? This past week, I've been reading, and I've finished reading for once, a book that was lent to me by a colleague kindly called My Name Is Why by Len Cisse, who is a poet from the Northwest. It is a quietly harrowing childhood memoir where he talks about his time spent in the social care system and as a foster child. It talks about the systemic issues that existed at the time and potentially, I'm not sure, still exist to some extent. It is a moving and really wonderful book, which I highly recommend people check out. It did the impossible in making me want to go back and read poetry, which is something I haven't done for a little while. So if for no other reason, it's worth checking out. What about you, Lloyd? What are you reading for? Thanks, Chris. This week, I have been reading the EEF's report, Putting Evidence to Work, a School's Guide to Implementation, which might just overlap with another guest on the show tonight, as we are both doing our NPQs. I'm doing an NPQH, which actually has made me think quite substantially about school improvement. It has shifted my thinking quite a lot. Because I, you know, I started last year, I I implemented a lot of things very quickly, and they give like four key principles to explore, prepare, deliver, and sustain for the four areas to for school improvement. And sort of I've been getting into that as part of my MPQH with the with ambition. It's a tremendously well set up course. If you're not on an MPQ, they are funded at the moment. And uh, I would highly recommend one, uh, particularly Ambitions, which is just just really smartly designed. It's really manageable. And this piece of reading has helped me to really kind of step back and review some of the things that we've got going on in school. I've been reviewing with Lucy in my head. We sat down. What we did, we got everything we're doing currently with school improvement onto post-it notes, Ollie Cab style. We put them on the wall and we went, right, what are we doing here? And we, we started to just go, that, that needs to take a back seat. That needs to go over there. And we just went, right, that's our thing that we need to focus on because the teachers can't do all of this. So we, we did that. And that in itself, if nothing else comes from this MPQH, that it's had a profound effect on me, actually, this paper. So, yeah, that was my mind. Uh, my, so, so, Shannon, <laughs> uh, what are you reading for? I am also reading the EEF's report all about implementation because I too am doing an MPQ with ambition. And I echo everything that he said about the fact that it has taken, given me a chance to take a step back and go, okay, now I can apply this to my day-to-day job in school, but also I'm starting to think about how I can apply it to the role I currently have across the trust where I'm implementing and rolling out walkthroughs and teacher development. And it's given me a little bit of a a pat on the back for myself because 
this first year is very much that explore stage and I've kind of let schools I say let like I've got the power to let them do anything but like I can't I've, I've said find your feet with it have a go see what works before we then move on to making it more structured and really getting into the the really exciting bits of it so with that I am also constantly reading walkthroughs so um there I've got two what about you Kieran what are you reading for mine's a little less practical than the ones you guys are reading you know I think in thinking deeply about primary mathematics I said about how much of an empiricist I am deep down so I've been really trying to get to the heart of what empiricism is and so I've been reading about the Berlin group and so the book was edited by Nikolai Milkov and Volker Packhaus and it's the Berlin group and the philosophy of logical empiricism and I think it's a decent introduction into sort of thinking in the 1920s you know for anyone who really wants to trace how we got to where we are now in terms of you know it's not necessarily related to education research but it sort of highlights how empiricism wasn't always the sort of standard mode whenever it came to research and things like that so yeah i find it quite interesting so that's what, I, that's what i'm reading for at the moment so the bulk of tonight's episode is going to be book scrutiny i think before we go any further chris can we quickly establish what we mean by book scrutiny for the purposes of this episode i guess it makes sense to define book scrutinies as what um, an instance of a subject leader, a senior leader, or perhaps even uh, a fellow teacher or group of teachers looking at a teacher or a group of teachers' books, presumably for the purpose of supporting better outcomes for pupils. But as I'm sure we'll discuss in this podcast, it not always turning out that way. I, I knew that one would be a short and sweet and to the point. I think it's the easiest thing we tried to define for a while. So then my, my, my next question then, and I'm going to throw this across to you, Shannon. Where did it all go wrong? I think there are probably a lot of places that it, it has gone wrong. I think part of this, and this is part of a conversation I had weirdly earlier on this morning, that when we were children, um, you may not have done this, but when I was a child, I would play school and I would do the register and I'd be a teacher. And then I think part of the book scrutinies that I have been subjected to in my teaching career have to an extent been teachers playing leader and going well this is what a leader does they have this checklist of things to tick off they have a set of books and they have a performative out and I think that there's just been this this culture of accountability and a stick to beat teachers with focusing on the completely the wrong things for so long that it's so embedded in schools that people just don't know a way out or don't know that there should be a way out. I just think you've got, and I, I, did, I did a little Google search of uh, book scrutiny. I think I did book scrutiny education and you get things pop up like, is your book scrutiny as effective as it could be? Making the most of book scrutiny, making book scrutiny more meaningful, linking book scrutiny to teacher judgments, a middle leader how-to for book scrutiny. There are countless templates and performers. So if you are an inexperienced middle leader, senior leader, whatever it is, with very little guidance, and you go to the internet for help, 
the things you're getting in the first couple of pages of your search are, are all of those things, those templates, those proformers that actually don't get into the bones of why you might look at books and how that might improve outcomes for children. And you get people looking at things like marking and presentation and looking for planning and looking for differentiation and challenge and progress, things that might not necessarily be obviously evident in a, a 10 minute book scrutiny with a checklist of things to look at. And I think partly some of this recently has come from Ofsted saying they're going to look at books. And I think there's a, maybe there isn't a confusion. I was gonna say, I think there's a confusion about why they're looking at books, but people have varying experiences of Ofsted at the moment. So I can't really say, and I haven't gone through it in the new framework. But my understanding is that they were looking at books to look at the curriculum and whether or not what you say is happening is actually happening in books. But leaders see that Ofsted are going to be looking at books. And so then they go back to this holding teachers to account by looking at marking, by looking at presentation, by looking at seeing if there's obvious differentiation. And it becomes this monitoring where we're tracking and we're checking up on our teachers. And so we're losing all trust. And there isn't like a shared understanding and it's not part of a wider process. I'm sure it is in some schools, but you, you see it all the time on teacher Twitter and teacher Facebook, where teachers have got feedback with nothing that's going to help improve outcomes. But we're caught in this cycle where it just, it just carries on and it just continues. And I don't think enough people are ready to break out of it. Right at the start of that, you used the phrase, which I think sums up book scrutinies beautifully. You used the phrase subjected to. You said, I've been subjected to book, book scrutinies. And I thought, yep, that's the phrase. You can, if you like, I'm not saying don't listen to the rest of this episode. You absolutely should. It's going to be brilliant, I've no doubt. But if you take away anything from this, it's that in a lot of cases, book scrutinies are something that teachers are subjected to rather than something that really involves decent professional development or any real focus on outcomes as shannon said i think we end up looking at superficial aspects mainly because that's what we what jumps out at us we end up looking at um, presentation again i'm i want children to take care of their books i want them to show pride in what they're doing absolutely and i want teachers to be on that but i don't want it to become a race to the bottom where teachers are competing to see how many different colorful sheets they can get stuck in books the amount of times that, that I had feedback on book scrutinies over the years that said, oh, well, you, don't, you haven't stuck in quite so many colour photographs as the other teachers have of the work you've been doing in lesson. Well, I, I've done the work in lesson. I don't need to take a photo of it to show that it's happened. The hope, the, I know it's happened because hopefully of the way that the children's thinking has changed as a result of the lesson. I don't need a photo for that. But I won't lie, I ended up falling in line and taking the photos and stitch, cutting them out and sticking them in my book and wasting time, paper and my own sense of self-esteem as a result. Yeah, book scrutiny is not a good thing. They suggest often, in my experience, that we can judge learning from moment by moment task completion, which we almost never can. I mean, the closest we get to that, I think, is when we start looking at writing because when we start looking at writing, particularly if it's a task that the children have done relatively independently, we can start to see that, yeah, well, maybe that is what they can do. 
But when it comes to the basics of algebra in year six or um, whether children have understood the difference between metamorphic and igneous and sedimentary rocks, etc., that's just what they did in the lesson. You can't judge their learning from that whatsoever. So really, you're just looking at books purely for the superficial stuff, as I've already mentioned. The worst part of book scrutinies that I remember was the extent to which they became a proxy for measuring differentiation and the way which they were a crucial part of enforcing task-based differentiation. Actually, no, that's the second worst thing. The very worst thing is the wasted time of subject leaders. I worked with a subject leader a few years back who spent so much time across the year scrutinizing books and yet had no time to actually read books or work out what professional development teachers might require in terms of their pedagogy or subject knowledge. They thought, and rightly because of the way that the job was um, presented to them by the leaders above them, they thought that the job was book scrutiny. And this meant that they had almost no time to develop their understanding of the subject and to support other teachers to do so, both in terms of their subject knowledge or their pedagogy. And that kind of time waste is, yeah, it's unforgivable. So scrutiny is a noun. The critical observation or examination is the dictionary, is the dictionary says it. Late Middle English from the Latin, Latin for scrutinium, which is from scrutari, I think, I believe, uh, to search, uh, which is originally from scruta to sort rubbish. So excuse my, my tongue-in-cheek reference there, but, uh, you know, when we look at it, it's that idea of, of leader, you know, like top, heavy top-down stuff looking for rubbish, isn't it? You know, and this is not really okay, is it? Like, that's not what, it's not what it's about. What is the exercise, of, you know, of, of putting work into a book? I mean, there's the tasks that get completed in a book. They're formative, right? They're formative tasks, not summative tasks. And I feel like there's this, there's this fetish to, or, or there was a fetish within schools to make books, these like sexy summative things. And I just don't think that there's any place for that in, 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 in schools. And that kind of turned into this, this monster which was, was, was fed by Ofsted, was fed by the whole triple marking. It spiralled into something which just caused the most, well, the amount of hours that people have lost, in, in, if you, they look back, if I look back personally, amount of time lost to superficial activities to, because I knew that a book scrutiny was coming and I spent two hours of my time when I should have been thinking carefully about task design, about pedagogy, about how I move children's learning on. And I wasn't. I was jazzing up my books to make them look correct for whichever leader had chosen to come into my room at that time to look at it. So, you know, I do think we are shifting. We are as a profession. And I think there's been some things that have moved it. But the hangover and the legacy of this stuff runs very, very deep. You called it a monster and it is a monster and it and it does run deep and I agree that we are moving forward and I think schools are looking to become more evidence informed and they're looking to read the research and there is none about book scrutiny as far as I can tell you know I haven't spent hours on it but I, I have looked is there any research on book scrutiny 
has there been any research done into the impact of a brook scrutiny? Because I can guarantee you the impact is minimal, mainly because it's non-standardized, it's unreliable. You can't, you can't trust what one leader has said about the books, compare it to another leader's view about the other books because they're not working in conjunction with each other. So even if a book scrutiny were a good idea, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, whether or not it is a good idea, but you, you can't have different people doing them without any kind of shared understanding of what it, what it should look like, what it should feel like. And I think for so long, there have been leaders going, oh, but it's part of a triangulation. And we look at the data and we talk to the pupils, we look in the books, and then we then we do a judgment based on that. But then what happens with that? What, what, what do you do with that information? Okay, so you've noticed that presentation is weak across the board. So what do you do about that? Are you actually using that information or are you just saying to teachers, presentations are very good? Are you then saying, let's now talk about the steps we can take? What routines can we teach our children? Are your teachers getting any professional development around it? Probably not. I'm hoping that practices like having to write absent and the date and the learning objective aren't, I'm hoping that's been erased because that was something I had to do when I first started teaching. Firstly, what a waste of a page, come on. Like we're trying to be more eco-friendly, but you're writing absent at the top of a, book, a page and the date, ridiculous. But I've seen leaders and head teachers with a stack of books and say to each other, let's look at the 22nd of June and see what they did then. And then they sit there and go, oh, well, year three haven't got anything in there for the 22nd of June. What, what, what happened on that day? And then they go to the teacher with this accusation of, did you not teach maths on the 22nd of June? Because there's nothing in your books. Like, the, like you have to put something in the books every single day. And that's another thing that people are checking. Is there something in your books every single day? As a maths lead, I don't really care. I will, of course, there needs to be something in there at some point, but learning doesn't happen in a book. Learning happens in your classroom and in your lessons. And you can't get a good understanding of that learning. Chris, I think you said something about this earlier and about um, how it's been this 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 need for task-based differentiation and, and this evidence of I am doing my job because it's in my book, but you don't you don't know what could happen in a lesson. You don't know what they've copied from the board or from their friend or what a teacher has heavily modeled for them. If you just look in a book, and I just think we're better off doing away with book scrutinies and starting from scratch rather than trying to fix the monster that we currently have i've got a little question colored pens i've got a suspicion or at least like throughout my career i always kind of suspected that the reason why children responded in blue pen and the reason why teachers had to mark in pink for perfect or green for growth or the other way around was purely because it looked quite pretty and so if it looked good in a book scrutiny, it was going to look pretty to Ofsted. Does anyone else have this suspicion or am I being a bit too cynical there? I just know that I've worked with a lot of head teachers who, or enough head teachers, I should say, whose experiences of Ofsted have led them to think that they are particularly superficial and thus they focus on the superficial stuff. And I always wondered whether this was perhaps the reason why we ended up with 
pink and green and blue and whatever colors um, schools deem necessary in their marking. In terms of the different color pens, yeah, I think you're, you're probably on the right lines. I mean, personally, I find it easier to ascertain at what point in their thought process a pupil has made a response. You know, our, our math books don't have squares. So if a pupil has, say, untidy sort of jottings, it's much easier for me to see the purple than if it were in pencil both times. So, you know, from a practical point of view in the classroom, you know, there is some benefit, but certainly, you know, to the wider picture, you know, I, I can't really see, you know, like it's one of those things that, uh, like Lloyd said, just sort of came from one instance and then mushroomed into something completely uncontrollable. I quite like children thinking about it. I, when it comes to like pieces of writing and other bits, I quite like them doing bits of editing in a second colour. I guess it's more of a... I've just got bitter memories of starting to mark someone's book and then realising that I'd written my green for growth in pink or vice versa, and then eventually investing in those pens you could sort of rub out but then them not actually being very nice to write with. So years and years of detailed marking in pens I didn't like, purely so I could have two different colours. I do think that there is this thing of, oh, well, if I use this colour highlighter to um, highlight the objective and then highlight the, the bits where I see the objective being achieved, it's going to look very impressive. We had, I think in my NQT year, we had green and orange highlighters. And then in my... NQT plus one year we moved away from written feedback just before we had Ofsted actually and we got good and they called us innovative and it was a delightful experience but not everyone has that I appreciate it but I think you're right I think there is this need for things to look nice and I do agree with you like you said earlier on I do want them to take pride in their presentation and take care in their work but not to the extent where that is prioritized over the learning and the teaching that's actually happening in that classroom and I am um, I think that some of the need for different colored pens has come from you're right it's going to look pretty it's going to look good if they do this and I don't think everyone is in the position that you're in Kieran with the strength of the maths in your schools where the, where they are going to make meaningful jottings because what you're describing sounds wonderful. And the fact that you can then see that because of the colour pen they've used sounds like a beautiful place to be. But I think most schools are just doing it for, for how it looks, which is not a valuable use of time or money, quite frankly, because some of these pens are very expensive and buying highlighters for every teacher a few times a year, I could spend that money on books. What Kieran was saying there about colour we, we use we, our children's use like it's not a staff that you need to use any any specific colour we just use one colour of staff but we do get the children like Kieran's to to edit in red pen and I do think that I agree with Kieran on that there is a, there is a power in that in a sense that if a child gets some feedback in the session as I'm as explaining something or uh, you know today with the lad we doing some long division and he made some edits then and as I gave him the, you know, they, if you, it's quite, they're quite trained at it, you know, and as I, as I said, oh, diddly diddly, he just picked his red pen up and started doing it in red pen, just started, just continued the question doing red pen. The next day we went back and said, 
he got stuck again and we went back and looked where he'd gone and because it was red it actually worked really nicely because he went oh yeah yeah I went there wrong there again didn't I and that's when I changed so it actually signaled where the the feedback had come and was really useful for him to make the change in what he'd done that's where I can see a different color being useful what I don't see it being useful as is, is when it's when it's the teacher having to, to swap, swap around with the colors I'm not so worried if it's a child, as long as well, as long as the children haven't got six different colours that they need to pick from because the pink, pink one is for editing and the green one is for response. And, the, you know, like they, let's be sensible. If you get them to pick one other pen up, that's, that's a win, right? Um, and, and for me, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely, there's definitely Curtis in, in, in what, what, what Kieran was saying, I think. What I will just say is that owls do use purple pen. I'm not suddenly um, leading from the front with, uh, a no different coloured pen revolution. Shock horror. And, and there are times where it is effective, I, I'll agree, obviously. But I, I think the thing we're talking about here is the, the highlighters taped together at their end so that you can flip them around really efficiently, which I think, again, goes back to wanting to play teacher because that's what my teacher did at school. She had a green and a red and they were taped together. And I thought, that's what teaching's like. Obviously now I know it's not, but I think there is this hangover of that's what it's always been like. You've always had these two colour pens as teachers. You've always taped them together at the end and flipped them around for super efficient marking. I saw it on Twitter recently, someone saying, like, this is how you smash marking on a Sunday. Why are you marking on a Sunday? Why have you taken your books home? There's a bigger issue here. But part of that issue is that we're doing book scrutinies and people are under pressure. How often are the teachers choosing the children's books? How often are they curating that so that you only see, you know, Maria who's got beautiful handwriting and, you know, Toby, who's one of your low prior retainers, but actually his book looks pretty decent. Like how, what, what kind of accurate picture are you getting from a book scrutiny if you're a middle or senior leader? Because it's probably not that accurate. Yeah, there's an extent to which I remember having been in the position where I had to do the book scrutiny and I just go around and I pick a couple of random books and immediately you'd see the teacher kind of like zone in on you and like kind of like start looking over oh no 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 don't not no 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 not his book no he's fine don't don't get me wrong he's, he's a lovely kid and all but no no don't don't look at his book look at this one look at this one and you think oh okay I, I, I get where you're coming from that's exactly how I would feel in the situation I've had a few experiences along those lines I remember one teacher whose books were always at home when it came to book scrutiny and I once saw her like humping her books back out from the boot of her car literally that evening she'd just gone and hidden them which I respect that I kind of respect that I also remember I think I've mentioned it once on the podcast I was in either I think the first or second year of my teaching I was devoting huge amounts of time to marking and presentation and doing all the things that teachers over the years strategically know not to do in order to not completely collapse and I remember the head teacher pointing out how wonderful my books were and me having this incredibly smug look on my face and in retrospect knowing what a massive disservice I'd done to all the other teachers um, in the school, but by raising the bar in the most superficial way possible. So, I mean, you see quite often teachers will share their experiences online. And it can be quite distressing sometimes to hear some of the stories. 
I mean, like, what, what sort of things have you seen, Shannon? Because people reach out to you quite a lot with in sort of confidence and this kind of thing, you know. So mm. they can, you can, you know, they they want your advice. You know, what do you what do you see? So I think the worst one I've seen recently was in half term. A teacher had gone into school to do a job or a display, whatever it might have been, and found the leadership team with their books and other teachers' books, and they'd gone into half to school in half term and done like a, a sneaky secret book look without telling the teachers. So what they then plan to do with that information, who knows? Because if you then go and feed back on that book look you did in half term without telling anyone, you've just lost like all trust and credibility with your staff. And I mean, good luck coming back from that. But these things happen all the time. And then there are surprise book looks where someone's gone, oh, I've had all of my books taken in by SLT this afternoon, but we didn't know about it. And I think we have to appreciate that teachers, we say all the time, teachers are time poor. We have an awful lot to do. And actually sometimes that sheet isn't going to be stuck in or that piece of work hasn't been marked to within an inch of its life. And that's okay. But I think some leaders, not all leaders, but some leaders forget what it's like to be in the classroom, forget the pressures of the classroom, or have never been under this curriculum where the pressures are bigger than they used to be. And they forget that sometimes we're not going to have done an RE lesson for the week yet because something else has come up because other things come up frequently in school, whether it's a choir practice or the flu vaccine, or some sort of like cross-country practice, whatever it might be, there's going to be reasons why something's not in a book. So using the book as a stick to be the teacher with and as a, a proxy for, like we said earlier, learning and progress and good teaching is just wild, in my opinion. Like I, I'm no fan of book scrutinies, but there's part of me that is willing to absolve, you know, not that they need my absolution, most school leaders because you know i think it goes back to what lloyd said about this having its roots in triple marking which i've traced back as far as 2003 if not further so i reckon most school leaders were have been forged in this environment where we were measured on these superficialities and that kind of beast doesn't change itself overnight you know, it takes a very brave school leader, you know, when you could potentially be one bad inspection away from the sack to go against the grain, you know, to, to swim against the tide, you know, and there are lots of brave school leaders out there. But I think it, it's, you know, I think most, if not the vast majority, are good faith actors and they want to do the right thing. But I, I can imagine it's an extremely intense situation in which they find themselves. You always have to look at a systemic level rather than looking at individuals, because in the end, from my experience of the education system, and I'm sure that this is shared by everyone in the podcast, is that it's almost entirely filled with good people who want to do right by children. The, the challenge there as well is that when we talk about leaders making kind of brave decisions as such that's a whole like you suggest that's a whole different business if you're a you know a new school leader where the next inspection seems like a really big deal or if you're it's a different thing then if you're a head teacher who's perhaps this is your last inspection before retirement that is it's a lot easier to make those quote-unquote brave decisions or equally if you're someone who's fortunate enough to have 
financial independence. So you're at a stage in your career or you're just wealthy enough that you could take the step away from education and do something else. So yeah, we have to think about the, when it comes to the individual choices that people are forced to make and or feel forced to make, I think we need to look at individual circumstances. But when we come to, for want of a better phrase, place the blame, we do need to look at the entire system and what we can do to arguably change that. What should we do, if anything? What I don't think should be the case is that we never look at them at all because we can glean things from books and especially talking with children with books, we can, we can gain insights. Now, like Shannon said, when the process is done right and it isn't a stick to beat teachers with, it's a collaborative process, it's a supportive process, a dialogic process, it can be quite powerful. And it can reveal a lot to teachers about how they potentially sometimes thought a lesson was perceived by a child and actually they didn't see it that way at all and uh, and you go oh okay that's interesting so that then on that feedback I'm going to maybe slightly adjust my pedagogy and that's not a bad thing now getting that right is a hard thing but getting that right is, is, is a tricky thing I think it's you know it's worth it's worth saying as well you know if you want to look at task design how do we know good task design is going on? Or how do we know teachers need more support in, in help the task design? You're going to look at the books, especially in, in, in humanities or, you know, we don't want to look at planning, do we? Because that's not what leaders want to do. We don't want to be inspected planning. We want to see what the children know. And we want to see if they don't know it. Okay, let's look at the task design then in this book here. What, what has the teacher chosen to do to, 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 to frame the knowledge? Is it generative? Select, organize, integrate. Is it, have we got all those things going on? in the task design here or does teacher need a bit of support with that because if we don't do that and we don't look at it and we don't do anything then how do we know the teachers are doing the right thing with tasks and instruction so so i really do think that there is a there is a case there for that sort of way of doing should we call it a book study i i'm not using that word screw me i'm sick of it if you reframe it and you change it and you make it this thing that isn't that that isn't the stick to beat teachers with and I'm up for changing the language of it if it changes its whole its whole um, kind of outlook, if you will. And I think like I'm, I'm doing one this this week <laughs> as it goes. I'm going to be trying a model of this this week uh, with some children and with some teachers with them. And I'm going to see like how they feel about the process. So I'm going to ask them about it and they're going to be all involved in the process because I want to know what that feels like for everyone, for all parties involved. You need to ask people like, what is this, is this helpful? Is this, you know, because if we don't do that as leaders, then we will never, we never really know. We can't think that we know what's best for things all the time. We've got to ask, you've got to talk to staff. You've got to talk to children. You've got to get opinions on, is, does this stuff work? Is this good for you? Does this help you? You know, and, and that goes for any area of kind of leadership, you know, ask teachers like, is this, is this any good? Like, you know, like, because it, you know, we've been afraid to do that for so long in teaching because it's strong leadership. You need to be the person who leads the way. In. And it's like, well, actually, strong leadership is sensitive leadership, is reflective, dialogic leadership, where you go to somebody and you go, what do you get from this? You know, and, and, and you know, dare I mention instructional coaching and the fact that if you actually ask somebody about, is this, you know, help, do you feel it getting better? You know, 
they might say no. <laughs> so, you know, and, and we've got to deal with that then, the leaders and think about what we do. So, yeah, that, that's, there you go, that's my hot take. A couple of things you said, Lloyd, there are um, exactly what I would want from a book scrutiny. Working with the children, working with the teachers, discussing their books with them, discussing their learning with them is a far better use of time than one person on their own taking a curated selection of books and filling out a template that has no meaning to it and has no purpose after the book scrutiny. I think changing the language around it is a nice idea. I don't like the word scrutiny. I don't really like the word monitoring. And I understand there are, these are things that leaders feel I need to do and that's absolutely fine, do what you need to do, but do it in a way that is going to impact the, the teaching in that school somehow. Do it in a way that's going to bring up professional development opportunities, like you said, instructional coaching. How are you using that information? If you are doing book scrutinies and if you're going to carry on doing book scrutinies on your own, with a, a pile that the teachers have given you of you know what what I assume people are still calling top middle and bottom then please at least think about the the information you're getting and what you're doing with it because if nothing is coming from it other than sending out your your template as feedback and you're then not having a further conversation about it as as leadership or as teachers then it is a completely fruitless task and a complete waste of time. I do think that we obviously we obviously do need to look in books for a variety of reasons, but I don't think it should be a scrutiny. One thing I did at one school was we were all or had done fractions in maths within the same sort of few months to whatever degree that year group needed to do fractions based on the curriculum and the scheme we were following. And one thing we did was look at how that progressed from year one to year six and where we were using the same models and the same representations and the same language and was there an overlap because you'd had to dip back to two years before and things like that so I think that can be quite powerful but that's collaborative but it's not the stick to be to beat teachers with that is professional development and I think it, like all of the things that, you know, then teachers saw what came before and what comes after and realised that actually there needs to be more consistency with the language we're using and the models we're using. And that, I think, is a really nice way of looking at books. And then if leaders go, oh, I haven't looked at books for ages and I don't know what's going on, then get yourself down to that meeting and join in with that discussion, because that's going to have a lot more impact than you sitting in your office with a highlighter and a pen ticking off some nonsense checklist that someone off the internet's created for you. In terms of where we might go with book studies, book scrutinies, however we want to describe them, I think some of the worst aspects of this come about through the desire to be systematic, but also the desire to avoid giving one-to-one, face-to-face feedback on something that a teacher might just need to keep an eye on. So I remember in my first year of teaching, uh, deputy head that I worked with um, came into my room and just said, Chris, you got a minute, closed the door behind and said, I'm sure you're very busy. I know you work quite hard, etc." It was very, very nice, very lovely. But then just politely said, your classroom, if I were a student in here, because of how untidy it is, I just don't think I could concentrate as well as I could in, in some of the other classrooms in the school. Ideally, is there something that you could do to 
kind of be a bit more on top of this. And when I said being all defensive, made my excuses about how busy I was, et cetera, et cetera, she, you know, took that on the chin and then said, okay, maybe I can help you with this, but we'll, ideally, it's something I'd like you to keep an eye on. And at the time I felt defensive and at the time it was difficult. And I've no doubt that that conversation was difficult for her as well, probably more difficult for her than for me. But within a week, I tidied my classroom up. I'd noticed the difference in children's behavior. I felt better about my teaching. And I'm not sure I was ever big enough to go to her and say, thanks for the feedback. I really benefited from that. But she wasn't scared of a quiet interpersonal moment where she was saying, can you, is this something you could be on top of? So I think there's an extent to which book scrutiny grows out of the desire to avoid those interpersonal kind of just quiet conversations by making it a systematic thing where, oh, I've not just looked at your books. I've looked at everyone's books and I filled out a form and I can say that you've got a three and a two and a four on this and this isn't good enough by the metric that we've put in place. It allows there to be this false sense of a false sense of control, false sense of fairness, and in the end, no one's no one's convinced by that. No one's conned by that. But being willing to just say, "I've looked at your books, um, and I've looked at books across the school recently." Just by the way, I think standards might be slipping in terms of the way that children are representing their writing. That might just be something to keep an eye on. That's still a positive thing. Leaders still have to have awkward conversations. They just don't necessarily need to put a piece of paper with a table on it, like in between themselves and the person with whom they need to have that awkward conversation. I think the name for this might be the commodification of education. I haven't read too much about it, but I have definitely been across sort of papers by different philosophers and things that sort of mention how we've moved towards, like you say, Sean, terminology like monitoring and things that you would find normally in in business so it's it's, it's really interesting that um, you know chris is then linking it with these things that you would associate with business like being systematic being efficient giving you know what would take a long time making it into a shorter form you know a less personal form and um, you know so i think that's it's, it's really interesting about you know how it speaks to perhaps this bigger picture in education you know, whenever Lloyd's speaking, I think about, you know, when might I want to use this? I mean, I like having this big picture of what's happening in school in my head. And so, for instance, one of the first things I did was that, right, OK, there's parity of opportunity for pupils. I want all pupils to access the same mathematical ideas, but to be provided access in in different ways, you know, where necessary. And I think you get a picture of that by looking, but then whenever you say, Shannon, it doesn't need to be a scrutiny. You know, I can do that stuff without having to actually formally do it. You know, we, I can sit with a teacher and I can have a conversation. I can probably see it in the lessons more often than not, you know, without having to need to go near the books. But I think for me as a leader, it helps to see what those end products look like at various points, because then I feel I understand the curriculum and the journey the pupils are taking, because there may be, you know, we don't follow the English national curriculum. And there may be times where we go beyond the expectations. And so I'm interested in thinking, OK, well, how do our pupils deal with that? Is this something that we want to continue to do or do we sort of move past that? Do we take that out of our sequence? And I think, yeah, I think it's 
prioritizing what you're looking at, but you, you don't need forms, you don't need, you know, any sort of system in place. So actually, as I'm thinking, you know, what should we do? Are there any reasons for scrutiny? I think it's it's repurposing the looking at books into something completely different. And I think if we do that, then we have a better chance of changing the system overall. Yeah, so that, that's definitely where I've landed listening to you guys, because I, I predominantly listened during this episode. And I'm, I'm nodding my head as we're going along. And I think I've got a better understanding of what the next step is as a profession. And hopefully, all those teachers who are listening to us, when they become wonderful school leaders, they will have the confidence to say, actually, there's no research that backs this up. Let's make the system work for us rather than the other way around. So Chris, we set out looking for five ways to salvage book scrutiny. How did we do? Well, firstly, you, you still need to look up books. Don't think an end to book scrutinies is no looking at books. You need to ensure that if you're looking at learning, that you're involving the children and teacher to make sure it's a collaborative process. And so you're getting a feel for what really matters, which is what the children have learned using those books. Don't be afraid of interpersonal feedback. Don't, if you're a school leader, don't be afraid to have informal conversations that relate to things like presentation or to things like task design, but also prioritize what you're looking for if you are looking for something in particular and finally be flexible in what you want to take from a good book scrutiny or a good book look it might be the case that you find something that can be supportive for teachers across the school so i mean that, that was a really fast talk i think hopefully it will prove really helpful to anyone listening and thinking about how they can get the most from opportunities to look at books and to share in the learning that pupils have sort of undertaken. All I said to do is say thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lloyd. Thank you very much. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>